for me is like a false statement. Like if you say that, that tells me that you aren't really paying attention to what's happening around you. Because everything's always changing. If, if, if you've done it this way for 25 years, my first inclination is that's not true, right? The, the world is constantly changing. It's incremental changes. But if you went back and looked at what you were doing 25 years ago, it probably has nothing to do with what we're doing today. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software Great Tech Group. You're invited to join our conversation to model the future of construction innovation and the digital transformation adventure of this great industry. My guest today is Ben Meyer. He serves as the Building Enclosure Business Director for CPLAST. He also serves as the chair of the ASHRAE 90.1 Envelope Committee, director of the Air Barrier Association of America, member at large on the NIBS BTEC board. He's a past lead technical committee member and a past technical advisor of the lead materials tag. You're a busy guy. Welcome to the show, Ben. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of things going on. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, I love seeing the involvement throughout the, the industry. So how did you get into the world of construction? Oh, so I'm an architect by, by trade. So that's kind of, that was my way in. But, you know, as you know, even before then, I always enjoy, you know, putting things together. I always describe, you know, my wife's in the medical field and I'm in construction. And I, we, both of them are about solving problems. I just really don't like blood. So that, that, that kind of led me down the construction path. Um, so that, that was, you know, at, at an early crossroads. That's where I went mm-hmm. into it. But um, I've been kind of in and around construction, building in, in my whole life. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, what gripped you about construction to, to not only bring you in, but keep you in it? Yeah, no, and I, and I think what I love about architecture, and even, you know, now I, I'm more on the business side of architecture, but I think what it's a, it's a, it's a training to really solve complicated problems. Like the construction yeah. process is an unbelievably compl- complex problem. So there's, that's always intriguing. You know, it never, never goes the same way twice. You know, trying to figure out how, how to get the best way to get from A to B, um, and, and make something. You know, make a, make a, a beautiful building, a, a big project, solve a problem. Mm-hmm. I, I love that part of it. And it's and they're not little problems, right? They're they're very big problems that you kind of have to piece together with lots of little solutions. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think people, no matter where they fit in the the industry, are are just amazing creative problem solvers. Because at the end of the day, that's that's the job. <laughs> you got to figure out how to create something super complex and, and kind of make it simple, but keep the complexity in there too. And that's a, it's an interesting challenge for people. And, and that's what I, I, I loved about architecture in college is that, you know, you go through high school and you do all, you know, you do calculus, you, you know, you, you try to do really well in your grades. And then in freshmen in architecture, they have some of the best and brightest students and they really say, all right, we're not going to do any of that right now. We're going to, we're going to reset and you guys are going to learn for a year how to work together as a team. Yeah. You know, Buildings are kind of secondary. The first thing you have to do is figure out how to solve weird, complicated problems, you know, on, on a daily basis and sometimes on a nightly basis. If it's an architecture, it's day and night uh, because that's the foundation. Like that's how you go forward and actually do great designs and build great buildings is you have to figure out how to work in, in you know, various scenarios with people. Sure. And that's, I think they do a great job with that from an, yeah. from an education standpoint. Any lessons learned on the, the collaboration side of uh, pitfalls to avoid? Oh, on the, on the collaboration, I, I think a lot of it is, is being open to asking questions before you jump to, you know, providing answers. Because many times, you, you know, our inclination to provide a solution is 
precedes our understanding, right? And so mm. we have to kind of first understand the problem. And I think people very quickly try to get to solution mode before we really have a solid foundation about what is the problem we're trying to solve. Because it's it's not always an engineering problem. It could be a design problem that we have, you know, something occurring before something else um, that we could have probably handled in, in design or really thinking ahead of time that would alleviate a lot of burdens down the road that we don't have to kind of jump through more hoops if we, if we lay it out right up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So one of the uh, kind of challenges that, that comes with complexity and, and the kind of the rhythms that, that we get in, in, in construction is is getting in our, our, our ruts, if you will. Uh, what do you say when somebody says to you, well, this is the way we've always done it, so we're going to keep doing it? Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I've battled my whole career, and especially on the main, you know, in design side, you know, you'd come to a contract, contract this is the design we want, well, that's not how we do it. Uh, and the same is true on the manufacturer side as, as new codes come along and, you know, there's the requirements are changing. I'll say, well, we've done it this, this long, for, for, we've done it this way for 30 years. We've never had a problem. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those, like, for me is like a false statement. Like if you say that, that tells me that you aren't really paying attention to what's happening around you because everything's always changing. If, if, if you've done it this way for 25 years, my first inclination is that's not true, right? The, the yeah. world constantly changing. It's incremental changes. But if you went back and looked at what you were doing 25 years ago, probably has nothing to do with what you're doing today, either with the, the types of crews you're using, the types of materials, the codes you're following. It's completely different today. And and the idea that, well, it's, it's been the same, so we can't change. It's just not true. Like It's always changing. When I when I hear somebody say that to me, it just it tells me that they're, they don't like change, but change is inevitable. And, and it's part of how we how we go through and make buildings better, safer, more energy efficient. And that's that's been happening for years. Yeah. How do you... Uh, kind of work on that, that the change management side to get people more comfortable with change because uh, as you said uh, you know a, a lot of people are, are not in love with with change they like other people to change but they don't want to change themselves right. uh, so how do you win them over of like it, it's not that scary change is happening all the time It'll right, be and all right. Probably, you know it just kind of when when they say that you know we've done this with this way for this many years you know we've never had a problem a lot of it is kind of rather than kind of jumping to a solution, we should do this instead. It's really trying to understand, well, what are you worried about? Because that mm-hmm. they're worried about something and trying to figure out, well, one, get on the same page that well, it has been changing for years. Maybe you really like this one particular application method. But over the last 15 years, all the materials have changed. Standards have changed. Um, there's, you know, been consolidated in, in different chemistries. Um so what is it about it? Is it the application method you're worried about? Is it the material type? You know, trying to get to the, the root of what's bringing that anxiety, what made them react in that way to say, oh, no, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that helps you kind of narrow in, oh, all right, well, it's more about that they, they really like, you know, using this type of application method. The materials themselves have been changing for years. You know, what we've done 30 years ago, you can't go out to a, to a, a store and buy 30-year-old materials. Like, they're not there. Right. Yeah. So uh, kind of leaning into that uh, uh, a bit more, you know, yeah. obviously there are people resistant to change, especially when it comes to maybe adopting some new codes and, and practices. Uh, the big kind of push right now in the industry is obviously around kind of sustainability and going carbon neutral. What do you believe needs to happen to change people's minds and, and maybe encourage them for kind of greater acceptance of these new codes and, and practices? Yeah, it's, so it's, it's a big question because... 
I do a lot of work with the energy code. So ASHRAE 90.1 is essentially the basis behind the commercial energy code for commercial buildings. And it's a, it's a fascinating thing because that the requirements for, for making changes in that standard is everything has to be cost effective and feasible um, at the time that the change is made. And currently we're working on the 2025 cycle of that standard. Whereas most of the world, you know, even most of the US is still mm -hmm. operating on a, a version of that standard that's 15 years old. And so we're, we're trying to figure out what's cost effective today to drive the industry forward for energy savings. Well, by the time people actually get to use it, you know, it's gone through three cycles and it's 12 years later, it's really cost effective, but there's still resistance. So while we can't do that, that's gonna cost us money. And, and again, what a lot of time was that what that means is I don't I didn't read ahead. I don't know what's going to be. So any change costs me something, even if it's better for me, better for the industry. If I have to change, there's a cost to it. And it may mm -hmm. just be, you know, personal cost, pride. It could be, you know, I have to change the processes. But in the end, it'll be, it'll, it will save energy, save money, save time. Um, so part of that is trying to figure out, well, what are you worried about? Is it, is it the process? Is it the fact that you're just not keeping up to date with what's current in the industry? And then a lot of that's really about how do we enable that? How do we execute on things that we know are cost effective that aren't being practiced today? And that it could come down to, you know, enforcement and, and, and education at, at the trade level, at the uh, you know, building official level, all of those things to, to really adopt the things that we already know work. I mean, that's, that's one of the challenges. That's what drives me a little bit crazy is we have, we're, as an industry, we're developing for 2030, these standards, we're almost, you know, we're only two cycles out from 2030 from an energy code perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but most folks, you know, municipalities are, are pretty far off in adopting those. And so kind of what we know we can get to and what, what people are willing to take on and really understand how it impacts them. There's, there's, that's, that's a big gap there. Yeah. So how do you uh, bridge that gap to, to help uh, create greater education and, and the come alongside of them for on the enablement side? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of it is just kind of getting on the same page. I've, I've worked with, I do a lot of education around, you know, the current standards for energy, mm -hmm. uh, for sustainability, things like that. And that's one of the things that I say all the time is when people are saying, hey, we're, we're doing a lead version for 4.1 building, whatever it is, and we want to get so many energy credits. The first thing I'll say is, well, the, the easiest, best way to do that is, you know, the lead version 4.1 uses ASHRAE 2016 as its baseline. So if you need to save energy from that ASHRAE 2016 baseline, there's an ASHRAE 2019 and an ASHRAE 2022 that have established that there's 15% energy savings just by following the standard and they're all cost effective. Mm -hmm. So like that's the easiest first jump. You don't have to think very hard at all. All the thinking's been done for you. But part of that is just recognizing like, oh, if I just look ahead a little bit, somebody's already done the work. Yeah. I don't have to, it's not a problem that I have to put my head down and say, figure out, you know, do I need a certain kind of elevator? Do I need to, you know, adjust my design? All of those solutions exist. Now, if you want to go beyond that, that might take a little bit of creative solution, but don't, don't reinvent what's already been done and, and proven to be cost effective. The industry is struggling with a communication problem and a lack of interoperability. This is causing 25% of data being recreated and almost $300 billion loss due to bad communication. Great Tech Group believes that is a problem. So they created Data Connect, an easy-to-use, no-code platform that connects critical ERP systems with cost management to form a single source of truth to empower better communication, decision-making, and project efficiency, delivering the ultimate business outcome of being on time and on budget. 
Visit ASTI.com slash data connect to start saving time and money. Yeah. So if it already exists, why do you, where's the, the gap falling short, do you think, of maybe on the awareness side of people knowing kind of where to go and, and the, the roadmap to, to follow? If it's already so, there, why aren't they? Yeah. So there, there's, it's, and it's state by state municipality by municipality. So some states are a little bit more forward thinking, you know, like, sure. uh, like Washington State, Maryland. Part of it is just how they built their infrastructure to adopt current codes that have been, you know, passed by a con consensus body, evaluated by the, the Department of Energy as cost effective. Once it crosses those hurdles, it's automatic for them. So that that conversation about it's scary doesn't happen in those particular. Uh, it just it comes on and it's part of how they just adopt cycles. Mm -hmm. um, the other end of the spectrum are folks that don't have a process to really adopt and, and really recognize what's current, what, what's effective. And then it becomes much more of a, 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 a political argument versus, you know, a, it's fact-based. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when it gets, when it goes from fact-based to political, you really have to, to separate those two and say, well, is, is our goal to do this or not? Because if we just want to argue about things, that's easy to do. We can do that all the time. <laughs> Our culture never argues about things. <laughs> it's a, it's a favorite some, pastime right now. <laughs> yeah, in some ways, that that can be sport, and it's like, well, let's not make this the the uh, the entertainment. Let, let's just yeah. do the thing we want to do. Yeah, agreed. Uh, what do you see as kind of some key challenges and, and complexities in that journey towards the the carbon neutrality neutrality, and how do you tackle them? So. It's a long list, right? And that's part of it. It's like at its core, at the foundation, a lot of it is, you know, making that adoption as, as automatic as possible, just so that we don't have to kind of debate the little things because it's really, it's a big problem we're trying to solve. And if you mm -hmm. get into the nitty gritty of every, every window, every door, every, every, every U value, you're, you're never going to get there because it's really a system problem. And, and that's the way we develop the standards is really in a system of solution. Um, so as, as much as you can kind of automate that as much as possible, and then you can really focus your energy on bringing the, the building officials up to speed, the designers up to speed, the trades, so that when, when it comes online, everybody has kind of a clear understanding of what, what do I need to do? Like, what do I need to look for? Like from the designer's perspective, you know, what change, what do I need to, what, what new drawings do I need to include? What, you know, inspection schedules are, should I expect? And then on the building official side too, I mean, they... To their credit, like they're they're worried about you know the project that's on the books right now. When a code change happens, you know that's they have to like well bring the new book out. Let's see what's in there. They're they're trying to figure out what do I what's new? What do I need to look for? They have to build whole systems around that. So as much as we can, you know, make the effect cost effective changes to the energy standards, as the rest of the process can come along with it. So that there's ways to inform the designers, ways to inform the reviewers, ways to inform the trades. This is what 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 needs to happen in order for the these changes to go into effect. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot of, I think, tribal knowledge that people have to kind of build and experience and get it wrong a few times before it actually gets effective in the market right now. And the, the shorter we can make that cycle, the better. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I, I want to drill into that a, a bit more. So let's say people are, they're, they're bought in on paper. Yeah. They're, they're committed. They're, they're wanting to change. They, all that stuff. Uh, but how do you how do you bridge the gap again uh, in terms of what's on paper and the reality of you know everything hitting the rubber hitting the road and implementing it on site? Yeah, and and what I found is most times it, re it requires a good story. You need, you need a success story to like get everybody 
over the hurdle of, you know, when you have it on paper and conceptually, oh, this is going to save us energy, you have folks who have essentially done it. And LEED has done a really good job of creating those use cases before mm-hmm. the market was ready for it. Um, so that that's, you know, so, so LEED is one, there's a few others, but, you know, Passive House that, that developed the use case, they had, they, they built the buildings, no, you know, it didn't fall down, nobody went bankrupt, they were able to do it and they actually saved energy. That kind of gives the people a, a, something to look at and say, all right, it's not as scary and dangerous as, as I feel because it's different. Like th- this is possible, um, whether or not you go through that entire process or not, but you can kind of see it and say, all right, it, it is possible. It's effective. Let's, let's make sure we, we do those things. Yeah. So uh, another kind of side of that, that coin, uh, and on first blush sustainability efforts and remaining competitive, it, it seems like people put that as a, a dichotomy uh, against each other and, and have it as conflicting priorities in business. How have you managed to, to strike a balance between those two aspects and, and not have them competing, but, but really kind of serving as, as complementary efforts? Yeah. I mean, and, and even when I was in practice and, you know, I worked for a real estate developer, lead was a tool. It was a way to differentiate what would be otherwise, otherwise be commodity apartments, commodity office space. It was a tool to say, hey, these are well-designed. These these are considered. So it, it can make help the customer understand that there is a difference. So I think in that way, we can't think of them just as, you know, cost additive. Like they create value for the building, for the user. Like Passive House is a great example, especially in you know, public housing or whether shared utilities, you know, there's a, there's a real benefit to the user to want to rent a space that's in a passive house building because that comes that you get to keep money in your pocket. Like that there's, there's value in that. That's beyond how many dollars per square foot does it rent at? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a really interesting. Uh, so can I, as someone that's really actively involved in, in all the sustainability initiatives and, and really helping drive that in the industry, what advice do you like to give other businesses as they, they embark on this journey? Are there any kind of key steps to get started? Uh, I'm going to say, try to be as nice as possible. So especially in kind of driving the industry forward and and working with code standards and even like uh, I call them voluntary compliance work, you know, like lead and passive house where you're, you're voluntarily Mm -hmm. complying with something that's beyond code, which is a good thing to do. Like code is, it, it, the worst you can do without being put in jail like that. If you say, Hey, it meets code. That doesn't mean it's incredibly safe. That means that's the bare minimum and it's not illegal, right? They, anything less than that is illegal. So yeah. like kind of to put that framework out there, like code, isn't the goal. It's not, you know, the high bar, it's the lowest bar. Like you should be stepping over that. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what are you doing beyond code? Um, so in, in that framework, you know, one of the, the things that I always try to encourage, you know, folks that work with us or you know, people we're trying to, uh, to work with is what, what are our common goals? Like what are we trying to accomplish that's high level? Because if you get too tactical and you say, hey, we sell insulation, we really want to sell more insulation, that's not that helpful, right? You're not, you're not, there's no value to the user, to the designer, to the, uh, to the, to the industry in that way. It's like, what, what value are you bringing to the market, to, to the process? And let's, let's focus on that because that value is, you know, everyone can kind of get behind that. But if it's really like, I really like this product and not that product, that's not, it's not really a, a position that, that is, you could stand on. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I, I want to shift a, a bit let's talk futures. Uh, so 2030, it's a big year, you know, everybody's been pushing for the, the 2030 challenge and all that stuff. Uh, do you think we're on pace a, and, uh, will people really be ready when 2030 comes along? Cause 
it's not that far away anymore. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting question. So like, uh, so as so I'm, I'm the chair of the ASHRAE envelope committee, so we're responsible, you know, to develop the, the standards that get us to a 2030 net zero. I think we're 2031 because of our cycles are on a three year and it lands on a 31, but, um, close enough, <laughs> but even, so we're, we're working on 2025 right now. And so the idea, you know, we've over, we, we, we our, our cycles are every three years and we've had cycle over cycle we saved between five and the last cycle that was a big jump because we added credits was about 15 percent and we still have a, another so we're saving over each over each version you know between five twelve percent um the next cycle you know we're, we're halfway into it there's mm -hmm. there's not a huge jump coming unless something magical happens so like that's to continue that pathway it gets harder and harder the closer and closer you get um, especially, you know, our, our charge is to be cost effective. And then that's, that's a hard thing. You, you can do it very easily, not cost effective. And when I say cost effective, I mean, we, we actually, you know, we use a very, if we, if we were, you know, money lenders, we'd use the same formula. It's a net present value formula based on the life cycle of, of the technology and what it costs to implement. So it's, it's a very well designed cost effective formula, not just, Hey, I think that's expensive. It, it's, it's, you know, we're looking at net present value and, and it's payback and over the life cycle of, of that technology. Um, but as we get closer, it gets really hard. And so there's, there's gotta be a lot of big changes to get us all the way there. Uh, not to say it's not possible. And I would say from the, the 90, from ASHRAE's perspective and 90.1, we're, we're on a path that, that leads there. The real mm -hmm. challenge is, you know, I'm talking about the version that we published that, that standard. So we're working on 2025 when it publishes in, you know, I guess a year and a half now. Um, the question is how many people are going to be using that? How many people are going to be current with the technology that we know will get us there? And it's going to be very few. I mean, if, even today, if, if, if folks that are listening or doing this, how many are even using 2019's version of that, which is, I would consider beyond what most folks have adopted. And there's a 2022 that published almost two, two years ago, 15% mm -hmm. energy savings over the 2019 version. And so, so for me, the biggest thing that keeps us from hitting our 2031 goal is how quickly we are, we are willing to adopt and create systems to take on the knowledge that we know we can transfer out. The Advancing Prefabrication Summit 2024 will unite over 1,200 of the brightest minds in prefab and modular construction this February for four days of exclusive case studies, knowledge sharing, and networking. Don't miss out on joining this event in Denver to take your industrialized construction to the next level in 2024 and beyond. There's content for all levels of experience and knowledge. So whether you have an established prefab program or you're looking to find out about the latest innovations or you're just starting out on your industrialized construction journey, you can't afford to miss out. For more information, just Google Advancing Prefabrication 2024 or visit the website at advancing-prefabrication.com. Finally, use the promo code PODCAST10 to receive a 10% discount just for being a listener. We will be recording live again this year from the show. See you there. This may be somewhat controversial, but there is... There's been a fixation over the last two years on on carbon. Uh -huh. um, so I've done a lot of work on embodied carbon, operational carbon. Um, carbon is one thing, and there's many factors that go into 
hitting our goals around energy savings. So an overfixation on carbon can lead, in my opinion, to suboptimal solutions. You're going to you're going to optimize for something that may or may not may help you hit the goal you want to hit. And I think mm -hmm. that's part of the challenge so that to, to, in order to hit the 2030 goals, we, you have to kind of separate the embodied carbon, and the operational carbon. We're, we're in the building industry. Our buildings are meant to live a long time. So the operational carbon, the energy use, it really, I mean, operational carbon and energy use, they're almost synonymous. So mm -hmm. the, the embodied piece of it can be a fixation that doesn't have as big of an impact that can be a real detractor, a real distraction from actually implementing change. So that's, that's one that both are important, but I think it's, we have to keep focus on, if we want to hit the goal, we want, we want these buildings to operate for, you know, a hundred years. It, it, we're still back to the basics. It's still energy efficiency. It's still implementation. It's all those things. Carbon is the problem we're trying to solve for, but we can kind of go down a rabbit hole and get stuck on it and not actually solve the problem we're, we're aiming at. Yeah. No, I think that that's uh, it's wise advice because it, it, that's just a kind of a general rule uh, with with goals. If you you have the the big goal that you're looking for, but you get focused on kind of one aspect of it, you're yeah, gonna veer off path. You got to be able to to see the forest and the the trees kind of at the the same time. And and this is what I mean. I I can appreciate the conversation, but at the same time, the more we talk about the embodied carbon of one type of steel versus another type of steel, we've missed the point because steel is not saving any energy on our building. Yeah. Uh, so like in the long term, that building is going to operate and that steel is going to be there. That that that's going to go out in the wash in terms of the rounding. How well we do with the energy efficiency, the operation, and even the serviceability of things that save energy, way bigger importance. Yeah, makes a a ton of sense. So let's say we get to 2030. Let's just in a perfect world, we're there. Okay, everybody, the, the industry uh, as a, a whole is is really close to 2030. What then? Well, I, I think that's that's part of keeping having a bigger picture and, and not getting fixated on, on carbon as a metric. Because I think mm -hmm. if you do that, if you go down that rabbit hole and you stay there and you, you optimize for one thing, you know, 2030, we're going to turn around and say, wow, we have a lot of, you know, you do our energy sources are going to be, you know, how is it? Is it coal fired? Is it nuclear? Is it dams? Well, there's. If we shift away from one to go to the other, there's downsides to all of those things. Mm -hmm. so if you go away from coal and you shift everything to hydropower, well, there's a lot of lost land. I mean, it's not a that that comes from hydropower, and so there's an impact. It's not carbon, but it's something else. And so that's one one of the things that if you if you optimize for a single thing, you're going to end up costing something else. And so that's that's the risk. And so the more balanced you can be as you get to the go, to the goal, the better place you'll be once you hit the goal and turn around and say, oh, whoops, I didn't mean to do that. Um, so yeah. that, that's something to kind of keep in mind. Yeah, no, I think that makes a ton of sense. So doing a, a callback from the beginning, how we started the, the conversation around the, the collaboration angle, what role does collaboration and, and partnerships play in achieving all these goals and, and really kind of stepping up and, and keeping it um, uh, sustainable, not necessarily in terms of carbon and everything, but keeping it, it, it uh, the initiatives sustainable that it, they keep going right and i think that's that's a that's a huge part of this because there are a lot of folks who are, who are involved engaged right now because they're worried about carbon and it's really about global kind of backing up a step we're worried about global warming carbon mm -hmm. is one of the things that leads to global warming but there's lots of other 
you know, secondary impacts that drive it. So part of it is, you know, keeping everybody engaged. If, if somebody is at the table because they are worried about carbon or they're really engaged in the embodied side, it's not kind of shutting it out, but kind of giving it a, a context and a pathway to say, all right, this is what you're worried about. This is the, the thing that's most effective that can help us save energies and also apply those principles. Um, but having kind of a balanced field. So if everybody comes with one, with one concern and comes to the same table, you're going to get one answer and it's not necessarily going to be well received. Yeah. How do you spark those conversations and the, the collaboration to, to go more in depth than just staying at the, the service level? Yeah, we, so we do a lot of that at ASHRAE 90.1, a lot of it's driven by the department of energy. So even, um, in, in the 2025 version, there will be a carbon metric as part of our cost effectiveness. And so that we we're doing that already in terms of having all the stakeholders, but part of it is kind of getting to a foundational level of kind of trust and understanding. There's a lot of, there's a lot of arguing, a lot of debate to kind of get everybody on the same page. So that's part of the process. You can't kind of run away from it. And you also can't kind of say, well, this is what I believe and everybody else can go away. Like you have to be able to state it and then listen to, to the, to the feedback. And I think that's, that's one of the things from kind of going back to kind of foundational architectural education. That's what that first year is, is, up until that point, most folks were A students and they, you know, would do their tests, they turn in their papers and they get their grades back. The fundamental difference about architecture is you do your work, you put it on the wall and we all talk about it. And that's, that's a very uncomfortable place to be. But that's, that's part of the point is that that's the only way you really get better is you have to be able to do what you, what you worked on and be able to receive feedback, like critical feedback, because everybody generally wants you to do better. Yeah. Right? But it can be, it can feel very personal. And I, that's part of the challenge is, is to be able to receive that feedback and then make adjustments. Right. Just being able to understand that everybody at the end of the day is on the same team yeah. going for the, the same goal. You're coming at it from different angles with different perspectives and even different priorities, but it, everybody's trying to yeah, get the it, building built the best way possible. And that's one of the, even to be a good a giver of feedback, the first step is to really understand what problem were they trying to solve. Yeah. Right? You can't say, well, this is how I would have solved it. You say, no, no. What, what problem were they trying to solve? Did they do the best job they could have with the problem they were trying to solve. And then you can give feedback that's meaningful because you have to put yourself in their shoes to give them actual feedback that they could have used to make their problem better versus saying, Hey, you should have done a different problem. You should have, you should have ignored that entirely and done something else. Yeah. And so that's I think good, that's good stuff. <laughs> harder, harder to implement in reality, but it's super valuable when it's done well. Yeah, that was, I saw when, when kind of back to the architecture. So I, I was in, in my graduate year, as a, my, my job was to teach freshmen. You know, I haven't gone through it. I kind of forgot how painful that was to go mm -hmm. and kind of learn how to give and receive feedback. And that becomes the primary objective is, is teaching very smart kids how to give and receive feedback. And it's, it's grueling. It's a grueling thing to do as an adult, you know, in every day. But you kind of have to say, kind of check yourself and say, look, they're not attacking me. They want to help me do better. So how can I accept that, that, that feedback. Yeah. Yeah. You got to embrace the, the uncomfortable, uneasy feeling and again, but that, but that's how be you, okay to be vulnerable. <laughs> that's how you make a solid team. That's how you solve hard problems. It's the only way to do it. For sure. If you just kind of put up your blinders and say, this is what the, you know, the world needs to do, nothing will get done. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. Uh, so as we start to land the plane, some rapid fire questions for you, what is the phrase modeling the future? What does that mean and look like to you? I don't know that phrase. Is, is that so it's modeling the future? Modeling the future. I, th I think maybe that's kind of you know as we project into into forward, kind of how how 
accurate as our simulation, right? And the uh -huh. more accurate we can be, and some of that's kind of being a little pessimistic, right? And also the optimism, where can we be? And make, seeing how those two interact. If you know, I think the better we can refine that model, the, the better off we'll be able to direct our efforts today. Yeah, interesting. All right, what does innovation mean to you? Ooh. So I think innovation for me is more, there's never, there's rarely this just lightning bolt and things happen, right? Innovation is just the grueling process of incremental improvements. And sometimes you're lucky enough to like have a few increments line up and you make a jump. Uh, but it's never one big jump. It doesn't happen all at once. It's, it's like, oh, this, you know, sometimes things will turn over quickly. Uh, but it's really a process and it's a, you gotta, you gotta want it. It doesn't happen on its own. Yeah. More than agree. Those 1% improvements, that's what creates that, that snowball going downhill that when you look back, it seems like you made a, a huge jump, but the day in and day out, it was, you, you don't even realize necessarily that you have made a, a ton of and progress. In most cases, it feels like you're losing. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Or are you controlling the snowball or is the snowball about to come to you <laughs> and roll you down? Uh, how do people find out more information and connect with you? Uh, so for me, uh, so so we, I work for CPLAST. We have a number of air and water barrier products, a thermal insulation that drive towards energy efficiency. So for those those kinds of solutions at cplast.com forward slash BE, uh, for me, uh, it's, it's Ben Meyer at cplast.com. Awesome. Final question for you. If I could give you all construction power, you could snap your fingers and innovate one thing in the industry. What would you pick to innovate? Oh, I think it would be uh, just automated building zoning code evaluations. I spent so much of my life on feasibility. And I think even 10 years ago, we had the, the capabilities to essentially do all of your code review sheets and all of your feasibility buildable areas analysis automatically. And I think those those things should be off the table in terms of what we spend time doing and what we spend time arguing about. The fact that there's whole approval processes that take you know months, years longer to essentially understand what we already know. Mm -hmm. These are very knowable, solvable things. And then at the, at the other side of it is as as you as that gets automated, all of the energy code, all the standards, all the buildings, those are very easy to apply to a knowable solution. Yeah. Do you see AI coming in and helping? fill some of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the, if the only thing that will keep AI out is bureaucracy. Um, it, our, our willingness to accept the answers we already know exist. Yeah. I mean, that's, for me, that, you know, I went through a lot of zoning zoning codes, zoning boards. These are math problems. There's not there's, there's not a lot of debate that needs to happen in terms mm. of what's buildable and what, what the lot lines are. These, the politics are important in terms of what should we be doing? But that's, that's future oriented. That's not necessarily what are we doing right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Ben, thanks so much for taking the time and, and joining the show today. Absolutely. It's good talking to you. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take, embrace the practice of asking questions before diving into problem solving. Discover how active listening and understanding as opposed to just responding can significantly enhance your effectiveness. Second take, the world is in a constant state of flux and being open to change is crucial. When encountering individuals resistant to change, learn the importance of seeking to understand their concerns, ultimately fostering empathetic conversations. And final take, when tackling substantial objectives like 2030 challenge, 
remember to keep your focus on the overarching goal. While sub-goals are essential for progress, it is important to not let them overshadow your primary mission. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software Great Tech Group at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining the conversation to model the future on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Keep innovating.